Hello, and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, Risa Kabir, and today I interview Dr. John Sargent and Annika Krugel from Broadreach Group. Dr. Sargent co-founded Broadreach with the goal to solve big systemic problems so that people don't need intensive medical care in the first place. They created an AI-powered approach to change how healthcare is prioritized, resourced, and delivered. Annika Krugel is the client director for Vantage Health Technology, which is a platform from Broadreach that uses AI to aggregate all data in an area or clinic and then give individualized decision support to empower healthcare workers. Broadreach has been doing amazing work around the world, particularly in Africa, and I had a great time learning about Dr. Sargent and Annika's path. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. We're going to start off with a question that we ask all of our guests, and I'll ask Dr. Sargent first. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and how you eventually came to the intersection of medicine, big data, and AI? Sure. No, thank you so much. I, I guess in short, I would have never thought if you'd asked me in medical school whether like you know, 20 plus years later, I would actually be founding and doing work in technology, I would have said you're crazy. <laughs> but, but now that I look back, I think the journey sort of makes sense. I, I think starting, you know, growing up, I've sort of always had a very international background. So I uh, was actually born in Taiwan. My mother was Taiwanese, um, father American. Because of his job, we moved around uh, lots of different places. So I think growing up as a child, it was perfectly normal for me to live in lots of different places, sort of move in between cultures. Um, and I think that sort of set me up when I went into college. I was pre-med, um, obviously, but you know I wasn't sure if you know practicing clinical medicine was really my focus or this international interest that I had, um, if there was something that I could do in healthcare. And so that led to some internships. And ultimately, uh, in, as an undergrad, between before my senior year, I actually worked with the Red Cross Society mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone in West Africa. So this was 1992. It was the midst of a really horrible horrible civil war. Um, and I was working in this refugee camp. We had no running water, no electricity, not enough doctors, not enough nurses. But if you walked outside of the gates of the refugee camp, you could always get Coca-Cola um, or you could get beer if you wanted beer. And, and I think that really started this question of like, gosh, you know, what, what does Coca-Cola know and what, what do these companies know that we don't know in public health? And I think that just sort of started this lifelong quest. Um, I ended up uh, working also in a refugee camp in the Middle East. And then I went to medical school and met my best friend, Ernest Darko. And, you know, in medical school, while we were avoiding studying, we'd sort of stay late at night talking about what could we do uh, differently in public health care. And, and Ernest also grew up in a really interesting setting and in that his parents were from Ghana, but he was born in Wisconsin because his parents were studying at University of Wisconsin. Then he grew up in East Africa um, and had similar experiences. So I think that really started this quest for, you know, what can we learn from other uh, uh, sectors um, in industry, what innovations can we bring? And so, you know, fast forward, I ended up when I finished my medical degree, not um, just deciding not to do my residency and, and not practicing medicine and really spending time as a management consultant because I figured that if I was going to go back into public health care, spending time learning about management and business was something that would be very useful. And then, you know, long story short, Ernest did the same thing. So, you know, we sort of pushed each other. Um, and then he was on a really interesting project in Botswana as a management consultant where the world was waking up to the HIV pandemic. And so we realized that, um, you know, we could really help in well, we thought we did. <laughs> we were pretty naive, uh, but we, we quit our consulting jobs and decided to start a little consultancy, which at the time we called Broadreach Healthcare. 
to help governments, donors, NGOs, anybody trying to put together and implement HIV programs. And you know, we can talk a little bit more later on in the podcast about sort of how we've grown, but that was really the genesis um, of, of how we got started. Um, and we learned lots of lessons along the way that ended up leading us uh, into machine learning and technology. That's awesome. So just out of curiosity, what year was this that uh, you decided to found Broadway? 2003. So we're almost okay. 20 years old. March wow. next year will be 20 years awesome. old. That's so awesome. 20 years. Yeah. Um, next question. Same for Annika. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your path and how you found yourself working in big data and AI? Sure. I think I could almost start the same way as John by saying, you know, if someone would have told me this is where I would be. Um, so the path hasn't been a very linear one. I've certainly meandered uh, somewhat. Uh, you mentioned earlier that academically, my, my background and interest has always been in developing countries um, and particularly in natural resource management and environmental issues. You know, how do you manage this when you're just trying to actually get by on a day-to-day -day basis? So my early career was really in that space. I worked with a range of community organizations um, in, in, on environmental issues. Um, I then started working under the UN umbrella for refugees. I was based in New Zealand at this time. And we were the local partners sort of to help to resettle newly arrived refugees, which was a hugely rewarding experience. Um, and then I started to feel a little bit, I don't know, far away from home, which of course I was, because I'm born and bred in, in Sweden. So being in New Zealand, I was probably as far away as you could possibly be. Um, so I decided to actually go back home to Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, but doing that, I wanted to make it sort of like a world tour and, and visit all the amazing people that I had met along the way um, in the various uh, jobs and, and studies that I had done. And I never actually made it home because I had one of the stops was in South Africa and I just actually stayed. Um, I mean, this place is just a, an amazing, diverse, uh, challenging, awesome, you know, all of those things combined a place to be. And I started consulting here as well, still in the environmental space, um, me and another consultant. And I, I'm not entirely sure how, how the, the path kind of opened up, but we got an opportunity to step in and support on a large scale culture and behavior change program in the public sector for the Department of Health in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So that's really where I think, you know, this path started to firm up and how I arrived here eventually, because this became a, a multi-year, I think I was there for almost four years, trying to figure out, not from a clinical perspective, but from a people perspective, you know, how can we make our people the very best that they can be in a very tough environment, such as the public health sector of South Africa. So that's actually how I ended up in Broadreach, because um, obviously that is very close to um, what we're trying to do. Obviously, we use technology to drive performance, but a huge part of that is equipping people to use technology to make the right decisions based on what they see. So a little bit of a roundabout way, 
how I ended up here. That's here we are. Oh, thank you for that. And uh, before I dive into both of your works, I wanted to make sure that I got your background right and we covered everything up to this point. I know that's pretty big, but is there any big thing that you currently work on in your background um, that we might have missed? No, I, I think for, for me, I think sort of the key arcs in the story, I think were covered in the introduction. Yes, same. Great. All right. So next, I'm going to talk a little bit about Broadreach um, and what they do. So this is for Dr. Sargent. Um, we learned a little bit about how this idea came about, but could you tell us how Broadreach started and what did it do in its initial day and what does it do today? Sure. So you know, I, I think in, in the introduction, I talked about how Ernest uh, Darko, my, my fellow co-founder and I, were really passionate about figuring out how we could impact public health care and public health care in, in low and middle income countries, uh, for, for example, in Africa. And you know, I, I think the whole idea was to always bring innovation. So we, we got this really interesting opportunity back in 2002-ish when Ernest was on a McKinsey project in Botswana. Uh, and the, the world was waking up to the HIV pandemic at the time. And in Africa, and in, in a country like Botswana, it was thought to have, um, you know, it was thought that roughly 40% of the adult working population were thought to be HIV positive. And if that were true, that would absolutely decimate a country like Botswana. Um, and so, you know, with the McKinsey project, he, uh, they worked on creating a strategy. And, and after that, he quit um, McKinsey and ended up working uh, for the government of Botswana to help roll this plan out. And that, that's when I came down uh, from the U.S. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And, and we just started asking the question, well, you know, is this the opportunity for us to actually do something? And so, you know, we, we, we quit our jobs and we created this little consulting company that we called the Broadreach, Broadreach Healthcare. Um, and, you know, we started out really by trying to become consultants. That, that's the, the skill and trade we had learned to donors, to governments, to NGOs, to anybody trying to do an HIV program, helping them design those programs and helping them implement those programs. And you know, I think we were in the right place at the right time because you know, a couple of years later, um, we were able to win this big USAID. So USAID is the, is the big international development agency under the US government. And, and they were implementing um, what was called PEPFAR, still called PEPFAR, it was under George Bush, created the, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And I think you know, as a US citizen, it's great to know that actually our taxpayer dollars have been going to really worthy causes like this. And so the US um, is the largest funder in global health and PEPFAR um, is a big part of that. And so, you know, PEPFAR hit that right at that time, and we were able to win uh, an initial grant to do some interesting work um, in South Africa. And that grew and grew to the point where, you know, we'd grown to four or 500 employees. We had a bunch of really interesting grants and projects that we're implementing under USAID, CDC. I think we had some Gates Foundation projects. But we were always running up to this limitation, which was, um, nobody actually knew what was going on. So we were working in the health system. So in South Africa, you know, helping the Ministry of Health monitor and manage, um, you know, over a thousand public sector hospitals and clinics and how they were doing in HIV and tuberculosis. And the, the challenge was that the data when we got it was six or eight weeks old. Um, we had to compile them into these massive Excel spreadsheet models. And so when we went to meetings with Ministry of Health, they'd say, hey, you know, where should we be focusing our resources to improve our HIV testing or to improve our HIV uh, treatment initiation numbers. 
and it was really tough. You had to like sort the spreadsheet, do all sorts of crazy things. It would spend weeks and weeks trying to figure out what was happening in the health system. And I think that that's when we realized that, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. I mean, if Coca-Cola can literally track in their supply chain where every single can of Coca-Cola is going, like, you know, why can't we do that in healthcare? And so that's what started our exploration in technology, which I never knew would grow to where it is today. But it first started out, you know, really simple, which is let's just aggregate the data into some sort of sophisticated database and let's do some cool visualizations and create dashboards and see what was going on. And, and what we found, we hit another wall, which was that um, it's great to collect the data and it's great to show the data. But the problem is when you're dealing in a really resource poor setting, you have a nurse manager who is un working in the clinic that's understaffed. She has you know, a line of 200 patients out the door. The last thing she's going to do is look at a bunch of dashboards, look at all this data, spend all this time and say, oh, because of this, the management decision I need to make this week is to allocate two extra nurses to HIV testing. It's not going to happen. And you go up the chain from a you know, nurse manager to somebody who's running a hospital to somebody who's running a group of hospitals to eventually the minister of health. Same sort of thing. People are busy and they're not going to interpret the data. And so I think this is where we really started our machine learning journey, which was, can we bridge that gap between the dashboard and the visualization to helping an individual person in their role make better decisions and implement them. And so all that machine learning and, and all the analytic models we started building was to answer that question. How do we interpret all those patterns in the data and very clearly say in, in a plain, simple English sentence, um, you know, hey, Annika, good morning. Uh, for your clinic this week, it looks like you're behind on your HIV testing numbers. You might want to initiate a community testing campaign. Um, and by the way, here's a link to the uh, protocol to do that, the step-by-step -step protocol that you and your team can use to do that. And, and that's really, you know, was the aspiration and the vision was how do you help each person in their role do better? Because if you can then help everyone from a community healthcare worker to the Minister of Health, you know, 10,000, 20,000 employees in a health system, every day make better decisions and implement them, you shift the entire performance of the health system. And by doing that, you take those limited resources you had and effectively use them to help underserved populations because we, you know, we are a social enterprise. We are focused on on uh, helping underserved populations. So that's how that that journey really started. And we can unpack a little bit later on, sort of you know specific models and things we've done um, that have had uh, quite an impact. That is so awesome. That idea of taking this and bringing it to every single individual. Um, and using big data and data sets to do that is so awesome. That's very cool. And, um, and I don't think it would have happened if we were doing this work in the US, because the US, you know, we, we have lots of doctors, nurses, PhDs. It happened because we worked in a really resource poor setting where um, we realized right away, like there's a really big need to interpret the data. And I, I think that for us was our cool breakthrough. Um, and it's interesting now we're coming back into the US and people sort of like this concept as well. We now call it the future of work and next best actions. Very interesting. I'm definitely going to touch base on that. Um, but before that, how many countries have you have broad reach worked at so far? Yeah, so we've worked in about 25 countries around the world, mostly sub-Saharan Africa, but we've worked in India, we've worked in parts of Southeast Asia, Caribbean, Latin America, and, and the US. And we're roughly 1,200 uh, employees today with 90 plus percent um, in various offices across Sub-Saharan Africa. Awesome, that's, that's really cool. And you mentioned 
um, something about potentially coming into the U.S. market. So what does that look like? Yeah, so we actually have done some interesting projects in the U.S. When COVID happened, I think, you know, everyone realized that, you know, there's, I think we've always known there's a lot of health disparities in the U.S., but I think COVID just really shone a light on that to say, you know what, there are some pretty serious issues here. And so Ernest and I, you know, although we're sort of, you know, global citizens, we're both U.S. citizens as well. And we did our medical training uh, in the U.S. We, um, you know, I, I guess openly asked the question, you know, have we developed capabilities and experiences either through our technology or, or the work we've done um, in the field in health equity? Because essentially that's what we've been doing in Africa. It's been health equity. How do you, how do you improve the health system to help more underserved folks? Did we have capabilities that we could bring back to the U.S. Um, and adapt to the U.S. setting to help out? And so it started a, a sort of a listening tour. We went and talked to lots of different organizations, payers, providers, uh, life sciences, uh, government to figure out are there things we can do? And, and, and what we, we ended up doing a series of pilot projects. So we worked with the Native American Indian tribe uh, during COVID. We worked with the state of Colorado uh, through a partner organization. We worked with a Medicare Advantage plan, a Medicaid plan, all answering this question. And, and we found, I think, two things. Number one, people love this idea of next best actions. Because if you can go into a big payer or provider, they're just overwhelmed with a ton of data. And so if you're a nurse case manager on a Monday morning, how do you actually understand, you know, for patient John Sargent, what are his sort of um, STOH, social determinants of health issues? What are things we can do to help him out? Um, so it wasn't that clear cut and people love the idea of bringing everything together and making it really simple, number one. And number two, um, you know, there was absolutely a big need and lots of organizations committed to figuring out how do we close these gaps in health equity? So where we've settled today is we're starting to work um, in oncology as a, as a starting point based on all the pilots and learnings. And so we're starting a really cool uh, program actually in Texas with a large um, oncology provider group, community oncology provider group, uh, because we, we find the community oncologists, unlike the academic medical centers, tend to really actually serve a lot of the populations with SDOH issues. Um, and so we're configuring Vantage to really to do three things. Number one, to equip their social workers and nurse um, managers to really understand what's going on with the patient and to help solve issues. So before a patient even comes in for their first visit, you know, we'll have data coming in that can start saying, hey, this patient, John Sargent, who was recently diagnosed with this type of cancer, comes from a neighborhood where he may have issues with food security and he may have an issue um, with financial security. So when you meet him and you start talking to him, you know, be sure to probe there and figure out if, if there's needs. And once they meet the patient, if they say, yeah, John really does have food security issues, you can then quickly in the system bring up the, the closest uh, sort of food bank in his neighborhood, you know, create a referral there, um, and if there's um, financial issues, create a you know, um, talk to the doctor to make sure whatever regimen um, and treatment modality is prescribed is one that that is within you know his health plan and apply also for a patient assistance program from the pharmaceutical company and really manage that process really smoothly um, in a, an electronic platform. Then at a different level, because you know this particular group has 15 clinics across um, southern Texas. Uh, how do we, for the managers, how do we monitor and manage what's going on in all these clinics? Do we know whether this particular social worker is overwhelmed with too many cases? Do we know that we have enough social workers to deal with our Vietnamese-speaking population? If not, how do we reallocate resources? Then at the executive level, what's happening across the entire population? Are there key themes that we can understand, like food security or, or language issues that would cause us to you know, hire different types of resources? 
or when I go talk to my insurance company to renew um, a particular contract, do I, am I armed with the right data um, on those patients that are in the insurance program to say, hey, these patients actually have you know, particular issues, SDOH issues, and can we design a plan that actually helps to reimburse for that? So it's trying to bring all the data, all the different resources together in one place. And, and our rule is that if we make somebody click you know, more than three times, and if they take more than 15 seconds to do something, then we failed. Um, again, that's what we've learned in Africa, and we're now bringing that to the U.S. So it's early days. Um, you know, the, it's going live in January, uh, and we'll you know, have an initial evaluation phase. But I think there's a lot of promise to have this reverse you know, south to north uh, tech transfer um, back into the U.S. That's really cool. Uh, I just had a question about how this data from individual patients is being collected uh, to kind of show the nurses, case managers, social whoever is working on the patient um, to kind of see if they have any social determinant of health issues at present. Is it um, kind of, is the data, is the tech kind of like looking through their electronic health records to parse out those um, social determinant of health issues, like equity problems, like how is how is the technology, mm -hmm. I guess, kind of getting that information? Absolutely. So it's a combination of self-reported. So you know, in this particular program, the the clinician or the social worker you know, will talk to the patient as well as the patient. There's um, they've got electronic registration forms. So there's data that we can collect from that. And there's third-party data. So in this particular case, we're partnering with Research Triangle Institute. Uh, RTI that has a really interesting data set called the Rarity data set um, that goes down to census level track that identifies uh, potential issues based on the neighborhood that you live in. So we sort of combine that and eventually, you know, we see this leading into value-based care because as value-based care increases in the U.S., uh, you know, managing SDOH risk is one issue of managing a value-based care patient, but there's also understanding clinical risk and other things. So the next phases of the project are actually to work with some partners to really bring in the, the clinical risk stratification and combine that with the SDOH. So that will then be you know, pulling data from the EMR, um, et cetera, and trying to build a really comprehensive profile of the patient. That's, that's very, very unique. Awesome. Um, thank you for sharing that. Now that we've covered a little bit about broad reach kind of across the world and the, the, program in the U.S. starting up soon in January. I wanted to talk a little bit about Vantage Health Technology, which is why Annika is here with us today. How did the idea of Vantage Tech um, or Vantage Health come to life? Uh, Annika, do you want to take that or should I start? <laughs> no, I was going to say that's probably a little bit before my time. I think John is better placed to start about the early, early days and I can pick up from there. Sure. Yeah, and I think it just goes back to when we started Broadreach, um, and we were implementing all these large uh, programs funded by USAID, CDC, Gates Foundation. You know, we just realized that 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 um, people weren't equipped to make the right decision at the right time and to implement those decisions. And that's how we started building our technology. And you know, we experimented, and we we you know, really started around 2011 on different projects, but we didn't really formalize this as Vantage. Um, until about five years later. Um, but the whole idea was you know, next best action to help each individual person in, in their job to do more, to do better, so that ultimately those very limited resources, um, you can allocate them to help the most patients possible. 
you just to remind the the listeners, you know, unlike the U.S., where we work in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, the typical spend per patient per year is thirty to forty dollars. That's it. Um, and then if if you know PEPFAR through USAID or CDC helps to supplement that for HIV patients, you're talking maybe two hundred and fifty dollars per patient per year. So it's not a lot of money, and, and you're dealing in really complex settings where you know government um, clinics and hospitals that are understaffed or under resources under resourced. And then patients living in communities with lots of SBOH issues. You know, a lot of patients don't eat three nutritious meals a day. You know, they may eat every other day. Uh, you know, they may not have had access to an education. They may not be literate. Uh, they may have very different cultural understandings of, of illness. And, and so you have all these complexities you have to manage, um, you know, this, in this super capitated setting with all these SBOH issues, you have to really manage tightly. And I think that's really where we felt that technology could be the, the game changer. You know, since then, it's evolved a lot, um, and I think a lot of the work that Annika has been leading around predictive algorithms, as an example, um, to identify which patients will, you know, drop out of the health system um, and then work to intervene um, is really important because you can get ahead of a problem before it becomes a problem. Yeah, and um, I would love to hear from Annika about how has Vantage Health Technologies tools has been used in different settings. Um, so if we can touch on different countries it has been used in um, different diseases, I know that it has been used to respond to this pandemic that we are still in the middle of. So I would love to hear on that. All right, so maybe that's a, a good place to start then um, because we did we did support the national response to the pandemic in, in a couple of different ways. Um, in the early days, you know, there was a, an appreciation that things needed to happen and they needed to happen fast in terms of understanding, you know, how, how is this evolving on the ground. And in a setting where many of the processes are largely based on paper, <laughs> Um, this becomes a very tricky situation to, to manage. So we had an opportunity to step in and support on the community screening process that was taking place in the Nukumulanga province of South Africa, where you know, thousands of healthcare workers were trained over you know, less, less than a week um, to use a data capture tool, which would allow them to capture the screening data electronically um, and then for those who are managing these sort of interventions to see this data, to understand where are hotspots developing, you know, where do we need to release more resources um, and so on. So, so to John's point, it's just like trying to make sense of this chaos that is happening in the world. Uh, we were also later able to start feeding in the actual uh, positive cases data onto these uh, heat maps to understand what is going on. Um, and, and to respond accordingly. Another project that we were involved in was to really understand the end-to-end -end process of this data. So you have a screening data, you have um, test data, and then you have the test outcome data, but there isn't a solid link that follows the patient end-to-end. -end. So we stepped in um, to support on that with a tool that would allow you to get that end-to-end, -to, -end, to understand are we case managing sufficiently from the first point where we see this patient, you know, symptoms are flagged to the test, to the test um, results, and then from, from there on. Um, 
So that was the response to the pandemic in, in South Africa. I also wanted to pick up on John's point around using the predictive algorithm, because I think that's also a space where we have, um, you know, we've learned so much over the years and it's been a really impactful experience um, to date. So this was something that also started in South Africa and it started from um, identifying the problem of, I guess, not, not knowing where to focus your efforts because you know that there's a problem and you know you need to address it, but you just don't have the capacity to really know where to focus that energy and your resources. So uh, we had our data scientists on the case and they started working on a very large data set um, from a program in South Africa with more than 500,000 patients on treatment. And they started looking at historical behaviors um, and, and try to use those patterns to predict future behavior. So in other words, you know, in the next month, who are at high risk of actually defaulting on their clinic appointment? Um, and once that model had been trained and performing, uh, giving us good predictions, we actually started engaging with the implementing teams to use this list of high-risk clients and then proactively engage with them. This is also to John's point, you want to stop it before it becomes a problem. We know that it's terribly tricky and expensive uh, to try to get someone back onto care once they have fallen off. So the whole principle behind this is to use technology and AI and machine learning techniques to identify where to focus your efforts. Once you know that, you proactively step in and you engage with these patients um, before it becomes a problem. And we've seen some really remarkable results from these interventions. We've run it in South Africa. We have um, run it for a couple of clients in Nigeria, and we've just kicked off another project in Uganda as well. And it's partly lessons around, you know, how can you really bring the value of technology to life? Because I mean, in the end, it's really about the insight and the action that, that technology is supporting you to make. And also operationally, you know, how to understand what you are doing. Is it working? Are we implementing with fidelity? Uh, you know, how do we need to reprioritize based on, on what we're seeing? And we're using technology along that full value chain to, to give managers and, and leadership tools to understand um, what decisions to make. Um, to drive improvements uh, across a range of our programmatic areas. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful that you can use that to predict, for example, who's going to come to their appointment or might be at risk yeah. of not coming. That's exactly, yeah. and in, in the HIV world, you know, as you know, if if you if you, if you are an adherent, um, you'll quickly. Uh, develop resistance and you'll have to go to a second line um, regimen and unfortunately in the countries we work in uh, the budgets are very limited and you get the second line the costs are much much higher and for many countries there's nothing after the second line so if you end up uh, um, having a resistant virus to the second line you're out of luck so th this is really um, important to making sure that uh, the resources are used to help as many people as possible yeah and this is for Dr. Sargent. So when did the Vantage Health Technologies form? Yeah, so, I, you know, we, um, like as I mentioned, we were experimenting with technology as far back as 2010, 2011, and we were applying them, the, the, the sort of the models and the um, 
the technology we built at that time to different projects. Um, you know, I would say you know, we really started going in at scale in HIV programs in 2014, but um, really the, the formation of the company Vantage Health Technologies really came around 2016, uh, 2017, because we realized that there was an opportunity to, to, to take that technology we built and put it into a sister company under the Broadreach Group um, that would hopefully nurture that, develop it, and be able mm -hmm. to then apply it to lots of different clients um, across Africa and now eventually the U.S. And so that's been a very concerted effort. We were able to raise um, some um, equity financing um, from a social impact fund uh, in 2017 to help us make that happen. Are there any other sister groups of Broadreach other than Vantage Health Technologies? Yeah, so under the Broadreach group, there's there's two sort of companies now. So the original sort of consulting group is now called Broadreach Health Development, and that's the group that uh, will win you know large contracts and grants from USAID, CDC, uh, Gates Foundation, and they will do all sorts of things from helping a, a government create their policy for a, you know, a certain disease uh, to actually implementing services on the ground. So in COVID, um, we had um, teams of people going around. Um, actually vaccinating uh, folks and sort of every there, every, everywhere in between. And then the second group is Vantage Health Technologies. Again, these are sister organizations that, you know, the staff, um, although their emails are different and they've got different business cards, um, you know, we all sort of sit in the same office and collaborate. And the cool thing is that um, because we're all in the same office, we're all working together, you know, we can talk to colleagues who are you know, working in a rural clinic and try to understand what are the challenges they're facing and then how does that inform the technology solutions we build um, on the Vantage side and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, going back to the Vantage Health Technologies and the pandemic response, there were a huge concern about equity around vaccination um, in different parts of the world. Has, has Vantage Health Technologies done anything on that front um, of handling the pandemic with vaccination efforts? Yeah, so on in the US, we actually had a really interesting project. We worked with a partner called Access Mobile, um, and they were working with an organization that was helping the state of Colorado. And so we were able to work with them and within Vantage, identify key areas as vaccines were rolling out, identify key areas where there may um, be um, access issues, where there may be you know, SDOH type issues that would lead to an unequal outcome, and then use that to help prioritize uh, the the vaccination teams and where they should be going. Um, you know, in Africa, you know, I, I think it was more on the ground type work. So we had funding from USAID to create teams of doctors and nurses that would go to remote areas um, or to uh, big uh, centers of of uh, like you know companies where people were working, like in factories and things like that in rural areas, to try to get people who previously didn't have access to a vaccine to get to get that access. Yeah. Um, and so going back to more disease models that Vantage Tech or Vantage Health Technologies and Broadreach has helped with. So we've talked about HIV and COVID-19. Are there any other um, disease and epidemic um, epidemics that Vantage Health Technologies and Broadreach has helped with or is continuing to help with? In different parts of the world, 
Yeah, I, I would say we the bulk of our work is is actually less disease focused and more what I'd say cross cutting, mm -hmm. looking at the performance of the health system. So whether you're doing diabetes or HIV, mm -hmm. okay. if if you don't know that you know three of your clinics in your province um, are underperforming, um, and that's due to a, a nursing shortage or whatever, mm -hmm. you know you can't address any of those diseases. So we, we try to actually focus a lot of our efforts there and the next best actions. We're trying to give people concise emails, you know, on a Monday morning and say, hey, uh, you know, in this particular area, you might want to consider you know, these three actions, you know, of, you know, allocate more nurses here, do this, do that, do that to improve and optimize okay. the performance of what you're doing. Or like the work we're doing in the United States in, in oncology, um, to date, it's more generic around identifying SDOH gaps for a patient and then proactively closing those um, and then helping manage your overall population. Uh, eventually, you know, as I mentioned, as um, we get much more into the value-based care uh, management setting, we will bring a lot more sort of clinical expertise and our models will, you know, combine the clinical risk with SDOH risk. That makes, that makes sense. Um, for Vantage Health Technologies, are there any new projects on the way? Um, and this is for both Dr. Sargent and Anika. Annika, I don't even take that on, on the African continent. I know there's quite a few new ones that you're involved in. Yeah, there are a couple of things that will be kicking off um, in the next few months if they haven't already. So typically a program year of these programs kicks off in October. So this is quite a, a lively time of the year. So we are kicking off on a patient retention project in Uganda. We will also continue some work that we are doing in Nigeria. And this one will specifically look at workforce empowerment. So how can you empower your workforce to monitor and manage their own performance um, and simultaneously support the managers to understand what is going on in their teams, um, you know, where they need to intervene, where, where are we tracking behind, or you know, where do we need to recognize um, high performance? So that should be kicking off shortly. That is very exciting. Um, not really a project so much, but we also got uh, an exciting event coming up next week. This will be the, the third of its kind. I think it's been a really valuable experience today. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's what we call our roundtables. So we have actually now started to bring um, clients, partners, funders, you know, government representatives where relevant, just around the table and we discuss topics of importance. So we've had a big focus on retention. We did one in Nigeria in August. Um, we did Uganda also in August. And we're going to Zambia next week to have, have this roundtable. It's just such a fabulous platform just to come together and share experiences, concerns, opportunities. You know, where do we see us going um, with these various uh, issues that we're all we're all working towards the same goal, right? We all do it in different ways, um, but to have this platform for sharing and learning has really, really been um, a positive experience. So that, that's the main things that excite me. There are other things as well. John, do you got something from your mind? Yeah, well, maybe also just give the listeners an idea of the scope and scale, because um, I think that'll also um, provide some some insights. So today, the Vantage platform, at least when we look at HIV, is working across multiple countries. Um, 
that are supporting, you know, close to two and a half million patients on antiretroviral wow. therapy. So, you know, that, that's 10% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these programs are either NGOs that are funded um, you know, by big donors or government-run um, programs. And in the malaria space, we had a really interesting project um, up until 2019, before COVID hit, uh, where we were working with a consortium of uh, donors, NGOs, pharmaceutical companies, and governments in 11 countries in West Africa to predict and identify um, uh, how many children would need access to seasonal malaria chemoprophylaxis. So the, the idea was uh, there's a certain drug that you can give to children five years old and under just before mm -hmm. the malaria season. It's one time and their chances of getting malaria during that season go down dramatically. And so, you know, that covered uh, roughly 19 million kids. So these are, you know, big, big programs that, that we're doing. Um, but you know, as Annika mentioned, we're um, excited and always adding new customers and looking at new uh, projects and solutions that we can do to conti continue to contribute to this idea that, you know, everyone should have equal access to, to healthcare and, and high quality healthcare. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for clarifying on that scope and scale, because I think that helps to just show how big of patient population this is serving. That's awesome. That's really great. Um, so we talked about some of the new exciting projects for Vantage Health Technologies. And what's next for Broadreach? And this is for Dr. Sargent. Yeah, so, you know, I think um, we've gotten to a really interesting place as an organization. I, I think, you know, we're, as I mentioned, roughly, you know, 1,200 um, employees. We're um, managing lots of folks um, uh, on Vantage. I think for us, it's trying to figure out um, how do we grow to the next level? And, and I think there's two parts to that. So, you know, we're actively um, working in Africa to, to continue to um, win new projects, think about new ways to deliver our work, and also to go beyond HIV. Because a lot of the work in Africa is mm -hmm. HIV just because of the nature of the donor funding, but looking to get into areas of universal health coverage. So how do you really take technology to really manage an entire health system across everything. Um, and on the US side, it's figuring out how do we grow from a couple of really interesting pilot projects in the health equity space to try to become, you know, we, we would like to become one of the leading solutions to help um, providers um, and payers to really address these issues. So that's really, I think the next five years is really focused on thinking through how do we do that and how do we find the right partners? And I guess, you know, for us, the, the other important thing is partnerships. So. Um, you know, these are really big, big problems, you know, some of the biggest challenges of the day, and they're not going to be done by one organization. They've got to be done in partnership. So, so part of that strategy is growing those partnerships. You know, we've got great partnerships, for example, with Microsoft. You know, we build, Vantage is completely built on, on Azure, and we work very closely with Microsoft um, in Africa um, and the U.S., but it's then extending those partnerships, academic partnerships, um, uh, other partnerships in the payer provider space to, to make that happen. I think, you know, stay tuned. Um, I think there, there'll be some interesting breakthroughs, I think, in the, in the coming couple of years. That's, that's really great. Um, so Microsoft is a, big, is, is, a, is a big partnership that you're working with. Um, any other big things, big companies that you work with or that, are, that helps you just succeed? And yeah, I, I mean, and de definitely, obviously, our, our donors. So I think USAID um, and CDC are, are mm -hmm. two big, big partners. Um, you know, in the um, U.S. space, we are working with the Community Oncology Alliance, which is 
um, a, a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. that represents um, community oncologists across the U.S. Uh, we've got a great partnership with the group that we're working with in Texas, Oncology Consultants. Um, I think they're the second or third largest oncology group mm -hmm. um, in Texas. We've got um, interesting discussions with various technology firms I can't publicly name yet, but they're more in the data analytics space, um, clinical risk space. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, in, in the academic realm, you know, we've worked with, for example, Dartmouth, the Dartmouth Institute, mm -hmm. where they helped validate um, that particular algorithm that Annika was talking about in, in Africa. Um, we've worked with you know, Harvard Medical School. We've worked with Stellenbosch University and other universities um, across the world. That's great. Um, thank you for thank you for clarifying that. So that was pretty much all of my questions on broad reach and annotational technologies. So we're going to move on to uh, the ending questions for both Dr. Fajan and Annika. Um, and maybe we can start off with Annika since we just talked to Dr. Sargent. What do you expect is the future of AI in medicine or big data in healthcare? And where will it be in 10 to 20 years? This is a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I have maybe a, a straight up answer, but I guess where I think of really exciting is how we're starting to pull together you know, different data sources that describes the whole person uh, and being able to, to use technology to support healthcare, which takes into account that whole person, I think is like on another level. Um, so you don't just become, you know, another record in the system, you actually become, you know, a person with real needs and challenges and opportunities. So I'm hoping that in, in 20 years time, that is almost like we don't even think about it anymore because it's so second nature. Um, I guess on the flip side of that, a lot of people are quite concerned around what do you actually know about me? <laughs> um, so I would hope that in parallel with this development, of course, we maintain all, all the, the safety and security processes that will still allow a person to, to have the privacy that's, um, that they seek. Absolutely. Yeah, I think on my side, to build on what Annika says, I, you know, I think, um, so, so if we look at 20 years from now, healthcare is always going to be challenging and there's always more demand than there is supply, meaning there's always more patients looking for help than there probably are doctors and nurses. And that situation is going to get much, much worse. So we, you know, we've worked in Africa where, you know, the setting is really tough. There's, I think, 0.2 doctors per thousand patients. Yeah. Um, versus the US, which you know, I think has 13 times more that number. But in both the US, Western Europe, and low and middle income countries, the, the dynamics are such that we're not producing enough doctors and nurses, we're not producing enough healthcare workers, and the patient population is growing. And in <clears throat> the Western countries, that patient population is aging really, really rapidly. Um, and, and parts of Asia as well, China, Japan. And so what that's gonna mean in 20 years from now is like, we're not gonna have enough doctors, nurses, <laughs> And we're gonna have a lot of mm -hmm. patients. And so I think the only way we can address that is we have to completely reimagine the model. And I think AI is part of that. So, you know, the model today, which is, you know, you have so many doctors for so many nurses for so many you know, thousands of patients, and they all come to a four walls of a hospital or a clinic, like we're gonna have to, I think, destroy that, that particular model. And it's gonna have to be, you know, how do we do a lot more with less? 
So from the point, if you think about the patient path from a patient being healthy in the community to when they get diagnosed, to when they get initial treatment for a disease, to when they actually manage that disease, that whole entire life cycle, where can technology actually be used to completely disrupt that the, the current paradigm? So in the prevention side, like Annika says, we now have so much information about a patient from their Fitbit or their Apple Watch, from what they're purchasing online to you know, when they see the doctor, how do we start building real profiles of patients and how do we actually start intervening? Can we identify from my genetics and my lifestyle that, you know what, I've got a you know, two and a half times higher risk of, of type two diabetes. And as a result, figure out how we using AI intervene with me you know, through cool games on my Apple Watch or gamification change my behavior so that I don't ever get diabetes. But if I do get diabetes, is there a way that I actually can get diagnosed at home? You know, maybe, um, you know, just like your Apple watch now can start picking up arrhythmias and, and weird things happening. Yeah. Um, can, can we start diagnosing without me having to wait to get symptoms to then make an appointment, to then go see a doctor, then, you know, get a blood draw to get my hemoglobin A1C and, you know, your, your analysis and all that. Is there a way to diagnose myself at home and actually start managing um, myself fairly independently. So, you know, again, there's a lot of investments happening um, right now in digital health, um, experimenting, can patients better diagnose themselves? Can they better manage without, you know, heavy clinician support? COVID taught us that, you know, a lot of good interactions can happen with healthcare providers through telehealth. Um, so, you know, throughout that entire chain, like how do we optimize it and figure out how we can do more with technology um, and, and less being less dependent on, you know, having a certain ratio of doctors and nurses and counselors and, and social workers. So I think that's the, for me, the big picture. And I think that's the exciting thing across that entire value chain. There's a lot of things we can do to completely disrupt and change the model um, for the better. Um, so, so I think it's an exciting future. I think this is a really cool time to be alive. Um, I, I think there's gonna be a lot of amazing interventions um, and, and solutions being developed, including digital therapeutics as well. That's a very, uh, very unique way to think about it, um, taking the healthcare system out of the four walls of the hospital and figuring out how can people manage things and by themselves. I didn't even think about it myself. That is, yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Um, something that Annika mentioned was privacy and security of patient data. Um, and since Broadreach and Vantage Health work with that, with um Aggregating patient data, how how do you maintain security as that is becoming more of an issue? Um, yeah, I, I can start, but I know Annika, you work with a lot of patient data. I, I would say there's general principles. You know, first of all, in whatever country we work in, we comply with local regulations. You know, whether it's HIPAA in the U.S. or Papua in South Africa or GDPR, et cetera. We try to make sure everything we do um, is compliant and, and we are working towards certifications, uh, certain certifications in different countries or have attained quite a few certifications to that end. But I think as a whole, we prefer not to handle personal health information, PHI. Um, we spend a lot of time anonymizing and tokenizing. So like mm -hmm. in the US, we actually um, use a tokenization solution where all the data and the tokenization sits with the customer we only get tokenized data that can't be identified and then it gets unmasked when it's sent back to the patient, uh, sorry, when it's sent back to the client. Um, so, so our goal is, you know, ideally if we never have to handle uh, PHI, yeah. that, that's great. Um, but I think this is a very quickly evolving space and there's lots mm -hmm. of data on everybody, not just in healthcare. I mean, consumer yeah. data, all sorts yeah. of data. 
Um, I'm not a I'm not an expert in this area, but I think there's going to be a lot of changes um, in policies coming in the future. Yeah, and like, I know you 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 deal with this issue a lot in multiple countries. Mm. Yeah, but I think you you've covered kind of the the essence of it. So we don't um, work with anything identifiable. So whatever comes to us um, would have been stripped of of all the identifiable mm -hmm. data. Um, we also mostly work with aggregate data. So, you know, we look at performance at a facility or, you know, another location. But there are, of course, instances where we do patient level, but um, it will never be anything that identifies the person. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, that's good to clarify. Thank you for that. Um, next question. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Should I start or Danica, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, you, you can start this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love to hear what advice you've got. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's something. Um, so, my co founder, Ernest Knight, always say during medical school, especially during tough times, when during clinical rotations, when you're taking a call and doing all sorts of stuff, we used to always say, be true to yourself or be honest with yourself. Because I think whatever path you find in life, you have to really listen to sort of what's going on inside and figure out, you know, where you should be going. So, you know, I, I come across lots of folks, whether it's in medical school or friends who you know, ended up in professional careers as lawyers or bankers or whatever. Sometimes they have, you know, internal scripts running in their mind that from a life event, maybe a, you know, I had an Asian mom, right? So it was natural that I was going to become a doctor, <laughs> but sometimes you get these pre-programmed scripts in our mind or, or certain things because of life events that shape how we interpret things and shape the path we take. And I think it's always trying to be aware of that and trying to really understand what's truly happening inside. Because if you can't do that, um, then you can't ultimately be honest with yourself and make mm -hmm. honest choices for you want to go. Because I, I really believe, you know, everybody has been given a certain set of gifts and talents and, and sort of it's our, you know, we've got this one shot at life and it's our, um, responsibility to really understand where our calling is and where are we going to mm -hmm. apply those specific talents um, to make a difference in the world, hopefully a positive difference in the world. And so this awareness and really always questioning um, and understanding your true self to, to find that right path. So, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm a big meditator. I've been meditating um, for over 20 years, but that's, you know, in essence, um, part of stripping away a lot of these narratives you have in your mind and trying to get down to the essence of of um, sort of what it is um, you are and, and where you should be focusing your life. And I think that's sort of led me on this path that I am now. And certainly, yes, we all take detours and we sometimes have to backtrack and do things over, but that's part of life. Um, um, but it all starts with being honest with yourself. That's so very profound. As somebody who's trying to figure out specialties, rotations, residencies, and all of that, and it never occurred to me to just sit back and kind of just figure out what are those scripts, like you said, that's running in my subconscious. That's I'm going to have to uh, sit with that. That's that's very very good advice. Um, Aradonica, you're up. What advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Mine is actually quite similar. So I mean, I'm not copying or anything, John, but I do think that whilst you know. It's always good to have a north star or a goal or sort of what you're aiming for of course but you also have to 
be open to the fact that things don't always work out that way. But I think to me, it's always important to bring your whole self. So like, okay, this is now where I find myself. Um, I'm bringing my whole self to the situation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, once you put yourself out there into the universe, things always come back to you as well. So if you just always make sure that you are, you know, the best that you can be in any given situation doesn't mean that you're always like high performance in every minute of the day. But if you contribute the best that you can and you're genuine about it, I think that's the more, most important part. So keep peace with yourself as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Keeping peace with yourself. This is why I love this. Like, this is my favorite question in the podcast. It's, I feel like as my daily motivation. I, this is what I need. <laughs> Um, all right, the next question is probably a little more related to Dr. Sargent's line of work. Um, any advice for anybody starting out their career in AI and machine learning, particularly those in medicine? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think it goes back to my other answer, which is, you know, really try to figure out what your true passion is. Um, because if you don't, when you hit the tough times, it'll be hard mm. to stick with it. Um, but having said that, you know, we, I think the biggest learning we've had in the technology space is that um, it's about people and it's not about the technology. So if you don't get that, you're going to always design you know, these algorithms and, and solutions and apps that actually don't help people. So for, for us, we have a very specific way of approaching um, our solutions. We start out by understanding what is the problem, who are all the different use cases that actually touch that, you know, what are the persona of those use cases, what are the eight or ten questions they need to answer on a weekly basis to solve that issue, and then, and then how do they work? Um, do they mostly work in meetings? Do they work in the field? Do they work in the clinic? And based on that, then how do you actually create um, the right solution for those use cases? What we find is that you know, it's great to have a great idea, but if you're sitting in an ivory tower totally disconnected to actually the people you're trying to create this idea for, it's going to absolutely fail. And I, I saw this as a consultant. I remember in the early days of electronic medical records, you had um, these clunky EMRs that were being implemented by tech people that, mm -hmm. you know, they, okay, they consulted a, you know, a focus group of doctors and nurses, but then they just sort of did their thing. And it ended up not working because they actually didn't understand how the user was using it in their environment. Yeah. So I think it all comes back to the user. It's all about empowering the user for a specific goal. And so you've got to unpack that. And that's actually what the hard work is. Mm -hmm. I think the, the technology is, is easier once you solve that particular issue. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's really important that you have to build technologies and apps that actually help people and it's about people. So I think we live in a world that I sometimes forget that because I'm on my phone or on my computer all the time. Um, that's, that's very important. Yes. Um, this is my, so this is the last question and my second favorite question of the podcast. Um, what do you find joy in, in African start this time? This can be completely not related to what you do every single day, but what brings you joy? Quite a lot of things. Actually, I think people in general bring me joy. Um, I do, 
I was going to say feed off um, the energy of other people, which sounds really rough. But, you know, I think we all give energy to others and, and vice versa. So the people that are close to me bring me a lot of joy. I, I do love spending time with my friends and family. Um, walking brings me a lot of joy too. I walk quite a lot just on my own. Well, with my dog, but I don't talk to him. So I think I'm on my own. And I try to do it early in the morning because it clears my mind and I set my intent. Um, so by the time I sit down at my computer, I just know what I need to do because mm -hmm. I kind of processed it, uh, processed it um, during my walk. I also love food and cooking and baking. And I think most of my weekends or social time is centered around what are we eating? <laughs> what are we making, you know, for, for supper or pudding or whatever it may be. So uh, we have a huge emphasis on, on food in our family. So it also brings me a lot of joy. Um, I think those are the main things that yeah. keep, keep me sane. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, I think for, for me, um, it, you know, it's about things where I can really be in the moment, um, whether it's being an entrepreneur and you're creating and you're in the moment or, you know, out, outside of work, it's things like skiing. So I live in Switzerland, there's not much to do in the winter. So I started skiing, I actually started at age 44 and I've, you know, now become completely addicted to it. But it's such a wonderful sport because you have to be in the flow and you have to be in the moment. Um, you know, I um, also surf. I mean, I don't surf as much now that I live in Switzerland, but, you know, for a while when I was living in South Africa and sort of growing up as well along the East Coast, surfing um, was, was one of those sports, you know, meditation, uh, walking with my dogs. Um, yeah, anything where we can sort of um, focus on being in the moment and sort of forget about all those sort of distractions and all those crazy scripts um, running in your mind. Yeah, that's that's really important. Wow, I I'm thinking of skiing this winter too because the, these Minnesota winters are super long, <laughs> and you do have to find a way to get out. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for your time. This was a wonderful conversation, and I learned so so much about your work, about broad reach, and I'm really excited to bring this episode out to our audiences. Thank you so much for your time again. Great. Thank, thank you so you. much.